0: You're listening to The Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. A reminder, check us out at perchperspectives.com for more information on the geopolitical risk services that we offer. You can also check us out at latampolitic.com if you want to receive our three times a week newsletter on the geopolitics of Latin America. Joining us on the show today is Chase Taylor. Chase is a macro trader and the global macro strategist and editor at Pinecone Macro Research. Um, You can find more about Chase and his work at pineconemacro.com. There's a lot of synergies between the way that Chase approaches macro strategies and my approach to geopolitics, aside from his excellent work Uh, At Pinecone, Chase started in the Air Force working on B-1 bombers and spent a lot of his career as a geospatial intelligence analyst. Um, So it was really great to get a chance to talk to Chase and hear some of his perspectives on investing going forward um, and especially on the energy sector and probably some some narratives and and some ideas that you haven't heard out there. At least that's the hope of bringing interesting guys like Chase on the podcast. Uh, Two little housekeeping notes uh, we recorded this on friday august 6th i think it'll be about three weeks before this comes out this is largely a macro focused conversation but just so you know that's the context that we were talking from okay enough of that let's get to the conversation with chase cheers y'all all right chase welcome to the podcast thanks so much for coming on it's a pleasure to have
1: you yeah i appreciate you having me on it's a uh, tough to act and follow after the last show but i'll do my best I don't even remember what the last show was. What was the last show? I think that was Marco, Cousin Marco. I
0: say. <laughs> well, yeah, Cousin Marco. They they broke the mold when they made Cousin Marco. They don't really make him <laughs> like that. But you should be happy to know that, uh, well, I, I thought the podcast on Nord Stream 2 was very good, but it's a very wonky podcast. It's actually going to be the one that people hear before you. So maybe that there makes you feel better. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. I look forward to listening to it. Uh, but since it is on Nord Stream 2 and since we were just chatting on it before we hit the record button, uh, maybe we should just start there. Uh, Natural gas prices have gone through the roof. Wall Street Journal is calling natural gas the commodity of the summer. And uh, you're one of the only people I know of who's been talking about this literally for over a year, um, bullish on natural gas and thinking that prices were going to go higher. So why don't we just start there? What are you seeing right now in natural gas markets? And what do you think the prospects are for the next three to six months?
1: Yeah, so natural gas has been just kind of on my radar for a long time. Um, but when I really got bullish and got involved, uh, was was in March of last year. Whenever the the oil price were kicked off, it just be kind of it was like finally a catalyst that could help natural gas prices get off the floor because it's been just a commodity that's kind of steadily leaked lower in prices really uh, as long as I've paid attention. And it, it needed you know a, a, a major inflection point to happen to to change the narrative, and that that did happen when when. When the the biggest you know oil producers in the world decided to, to flood the world with oil, right as we went into a pandemic, uh, took off a lot of associated production that comes along with kind of shale oil production in the U.S., uh, which kind of helped clear the market. Um, and, and right now, what I think what is probably most interesting in the gas market is what's going on in Europe. Uh, part of that is is from Russia not not necessarily giving Europe. All they all they want via pipeline, so the prices are kind of skyrocketing in Europe. Part of that is low, low supply naturally is going to you know give, give you higher prices. But on on top of that, carbon pricing um, kind of a- adds to that. So electricity in in Europe is very expensive right now, which has a lot of polit- political ramifications moving forward. And and for those un- unfamiliar with natural gas markets, typically in the summertime, it's kind of when you you know inject a lot uh, of supply and and store it and then in the winter you kind of draw that down if you look at a a chart of of you know the storage of natural gas it's like a big sawtooth uh because of that so in the summer you you really need to build up a lot of supply for the winter and it looks like what we could have is globally just less supply going into the winter than we normally have and i personally think we might have a very cold winter globally and if that happens then you know, you, you could see a, a real, you could see a crisis when it comes to natural gas supplies.
0: Yeah, before we get to the weather, it seems like it's been one, so it started, like you you mentioned the oil price war with Russia and Saudi Arabia, particularly ill-timed, um, but then, you know, Asia was was having shortages because they had a particularly cold winter this last year, or at least there were a couple of weeks there where things were really short. Latin America, where hydropower is really suffering because of drought there, they're now importing LNG at, at higher rates, whether it's Brazil, Argentina, and now you've got the Europe issue. Um, I'm not conspiratorial about this. I, I don't think that Russia planned it this way. But man, if, if you're Russia, you, you literally could not have timed any of this stuff uh, better with Nord Stream 2. But the the flip side also, and you alluded to this with sort of EU carbon trading schemes and things like that, is that long term, or at least um, rhetorically long term, the EU is probably at the forefront of getting away from hydrocarbons completely. At the point that Russia is talking about having to adopt Um, blue hydrogen, full scale, which there's still like application for natural gas with blue hydrogen, obviously. Um, But so do you think this is sort of a passing moment in time here for the next year or two? Um, Or do you think that it's the possibility for an extended bull run on natural gas? I mean, you know, you also alluded to that, you know, natural gas has been sort of in a bear turn since 2014. So is it an equal and opposite reaction? Or is it just kind of a one to two year reprieve here?
1: Uh, I'm personally in the longer term camp. I, I think this is a a structural issue, and but part of that is colored by a, a view I personally have that renewables will struggle to take the kind of the market share that we all have been led to think that going to happen. I just from a basic how grids work standpoint, it, it's just difficult to have a, a is difficult difficult to rely too heavily on on renewables, especially you know variable renewables. You can kind of get away with it with hydro usually, although this year's kind of shown that you know there's some. There's some issues there, but I, I just think until we have that battery solution that really can store renewables on a commercial, you know, scale at, at a reasonable cost, which currently nothing has really been commercialized that makes that work. Uh, there has been, you know, plenty of innovation lately and a lot of promises made, but I I will kind of wait to see that delivered before I change my structural view. Uh, and just on that weather thing uh, earlier, I, I think this winter is going to be bad, but I think I think it's going to be and I know this will be controversial, but I, I, I think we're going to be in a in a a cooler kind of regime for the next, like, really, decade or two. So, hey, whenever whenever you look at something like that, obviously that no one's pricing that in or really expecting that. And and if we do get that, everything we we kind of know about supply and demand for natural gas is is gonna is gonna sort of change. And even even if we do get a lot of renewables, I think natural gas is sort of the last. It's sort of the last survivor for, especially for el- electric grids. Uh, coal obviously is having a big, you know, renaissance this year. So we, we haven't even really hit peak coal yet. So of course we're not going to hit peak natural gas demand in the next, you know, two years in my opinion.
0: Uh, yeah, you, you've, you uh, well, let's, let's sit on the weather thing there for a second because I don't know a lot of people that are saying that. So I want to hack into that a little bit more. Um, what sure. are you seeing that makes you think that we're in for, cooler winters going forward here for a for a prolonged period
1: so when it comes to weather i I, i've done a ton of research i actually wrote a monthly piece uh like a couple years ago about it and what what originally I, i started with was just solar cycle stuff uh which i think a lot of people realize like hey we're gonna hit a solar minimum here and that is gonna you know reduce some pressure on temperatures like that that's not controversial at all but if you kind of overlay that with some other cycles uh, for weather that have more to do with planetary alignments, specifically Neptune and Uranus and Jupiter and Saturn, the way those all line up has significant impacts on on sea surface temperatures because they, they impact uh, the way our currents work. Uh, what I think a lot of people lose sight of is how much you know sea surface temperatures impact just our you know air temperatures uh, and. You know down at the bottom of the ocean is very cold all the time no matter what regardless of carbon emissions if something happens that brings up that cold water towards the surface you end up with just cooler you know temperatures this is this is kind of how that works and these different cycles of the way planets line up i know this sounds kooky but <laughs> that that has a lot of impacts on that that will bring cooler sea surface temperatures and just you know, I'm assuming people listening are at least familiar with uh, La Niña's and El Niño's and, and really that's what that is. But on a, on a kind of a small cyclical level, whereas some of these bigger cycles, Gleisberg cycle, things like this, they're kind of more secular. They're, they're longer term, they're bigger movements. Um, and what we have right now between the, the kind of solar minimum cycle and um, and a couple of those planetary cycles i was talking about they overlap in a way they haven't since uh about 1590 and it was pretty cold back then uh yes it was super cold
0: back yeah. then yeah. and and i'll tell you it, it does sound a little kooky but i like a little bit kooky um, <laughs> usually when you haven't heard something before um either it's completely crazy or there's something to it and i can i can vouch for you that you're not completely crazy so i, I want to hear more about this the difference between now though and maybe the last time that these cycles converge that you're talking about is that there's a lot more CO2 in the environment than there was then. Um, uh, sea temperatures are already much warmer uh, than they were then and are getting much warmer. All the trajectories are are really bad. So have you seen any modeling or thought at all about how current conditions are going to interact with these cycles? Or is that just, are we at too many variables now to make any, any firm comments about that?
1: So I would say the too many variables part. Um and you know i would i would assume so like nasa looks at this but they mostly look at like kind of solar cycle and, and they's like hey yes this is going to cool us down but essentially what you're saying like just the basic climate models are just they're just too hot for that to really have a dramatic impact mm-hmm. um but they're not overlaying you know these different you know meridional oscillations and different you know long-term weather cycles that all kind of overlap and i think that's kind of where a lot of people are missing uh that that piece but i would say you know it it stands to reason it makes sense that this isn't this probably won't be like a a, you know an ice age situation where excuse me where you know we have a just insane plunge in in temperatures because we have just this warming that we've created you know since the industrial revolution that should keep it from being quite as bad but if you just look like you, you mentioned you know Asia last winter and Europe, they kind of had rough winters and just, just what those alone did to LNG markets and, and, and gas prices in general. And you can, I mean, we're still feeling the effects of the, of the supply drawdown from that. So, and the infrastructure really just isn't in place to get enough LNG moving to make up for something worse than that. And, and what I, what I think is coming is, is going to be worse than that. And obviously this has dramatic impacts on agriculture in the future as well, but.
0: Yeah. And I mean, to your point. Um, you know, the, the politicization of climate change has really made it very difficult to talk about these things in a way that is in any way rational or coherent. Because when you have one side of the argument that is basically denying that anything is wrong, and another side of the argument that says we have to stop everything we're doing in order to avert certain catastrophe and we're all going to die in 30 years, it's it's really difficult to get a word in in the middle. So it sounds sounds to me like you're not, and I'm doing this for listeners because you, you need to calm down for a second here. I don't think what Chase is saying is that climate change isn't real or that this isn't a pressing problem. Um, we're talking about markets right now. And as you alluded to, I mean, even just a particularly cold week can send markets into a complete tizzy. Um, I was in Texas earlier this winter. When a week in, a cold week in Texas shut down the entire energy grid, <laughs> natural gas prices went completely through the roof then. So if we're talking about, you know, even small changes um, compared to what people are expecting the market to be, um, that might not change the overall trajectory or even the importance of dealing with climate change. But I think what your point is that at a market basis, if you're thinking about what's going to happen in the next two to three years, um that can have a tremendous impact if you're not appropriately preparing for those sorts of contingencies is that a fair way of summing up what you're saying here
1: it is and 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 honestly the the way i see it is it's kind of you know it, it, if i'm right about this stuff and who knows but um, i trust me listeners i am not any sort of climate experts i'm I'm a macro guy which means uh, my knowledge is a mile wide and an inch deep and it's less than an inch deep on this so <laughs> take it all to grain of salt and, and some tequila but uh <laughs> What's scary to me honestly is that you know I, I, I assume climate change is real and everything we kind of know about is real so I, if if we do get this cooling and it and it does kind of last for a while the way it looks like it, it should based on some of these cycles overlapping, that's kind of scary because if everyone decides like oh that was that wasn't real like let's just not worry about it you know but if this is just natural cycles the way I see it, then obviously they go away like you get the hot cycles they come back again. So if we give up on, you know, tra- kind of changing the world, at, you know, say 10 years from now, if this looks like, oh, like it's cooling, like who cares now? Uh, that, that's scary to me, like, because then all of a sudden you just start belching coal again or whatever. And, you know, you're if no one cares about emissions 20 years from now, the next time the cycle turns, we have a problem.
0: Yeah, well, and that that segues nicely into a piece you did that I, I read this morning about coal. Um, which really kind of threw me for a loop. I, I had a sense of, uh, I mean, you, you made the very uh, pointed comment here that we haven't even hit peak coal yet. I sort of knew that intuitively. I mean, China obviously still uses a lot of coal. India is one of the largest coal consumers in the world. South Africa is another huge one. It's because it's cheap and it's plentiful there. Um, but you had some statistics in there just about, you know, how many people in the world still haven't made the transition to high energy and how there is just going to be basic demand for coal going forward and that you can't, from an investment standpoint, just leave it behind. So talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing with coal and why you think even coal, which is probably the redheaded stepchild of all the hydrocarbons, um, is posed for maybe better performance than than people are maybe
1: thinking. Yeah, it is the redheaded stepchild and it should be. Like it is, it's incredibly, I mean, carbon intensive. It, it's, But at the same time, it is really robust uh so I, I think people get really hung up on renewables in the grid and they don't realize that you can't depend on them and that that's why you have you know some grid failures and we're used to third world countries having those problems we think about nigeria where everyone has a has a generator and things like that and all of a sudden you know in california just in the last month has saying they're going to pay industry to use generators at certain peak hours because they need the electricity and that, that, and obviously California has a, a heavy renewable grid and obviously it's kind of a perfect storm at the same time. They're, they're going to have a nuclear plant go offline and um, they don't really buy a lot of the electricity from their neighbors. Uh, no one was really expecting to have a drought so bad that you lost, you know, hydro production. So it, it's not, it's not as bad as a lot of the kind of climate denier type folks like to, to say about California. But at the same time, if you're telling people please don't plug in your ev and and telling a factory please run your backup diesel generator like obviously there's a grid problem there <laughs> and the point i just want to make is you, you can't just go 100 percent renewables on a grid without you know batteries to, to store that it's, that, that just doesn't work unless you have almost all hydro or something like that um and because of that it, Something that's interesting is like natural gas. Obviously, is is kind of a like base load power. You can just kind of always have it on, but at the same time, you, you don't really, you can't just have a big pile of natural gas just sitting there. You have to pipe it in, and that that's kind of not that hard to have interruptions with. Whereas coal, you can literally just have a ton of coal just sitting by and just waiting. And so, the robustness of those plants is is is, is meaningful. I think even thirty years from now, it's, it would it would make sense to have backup plants of coal, just because you can turn them on, you know, w- w- with with ease. Um, but obviously, we should get really far away from coal because of the the climate impacts. But it's just one in, in, uh, aspect I think people lose sight of is that is that robustness and the fact that you can de- depend on it in ways you can't depend on almost any other any other source. But uh, it's one of your points if, if you think about the emerging world uh they the amount of energy they use is, is, is' just a lot less than than us in the West. So we sit in the west, we're rich, we think we can move to you know all these new and 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 sometimes more expensive you know means uh and a lot of people like to point to how cheap a lot of renewables are today, but if you really think about it that a lot of that's because we haven't begun to like mine all the things that go into those. Uh, at scale yet. And when you do that, the price of, you know, nickel and you you name it, it, it goes up and that all of a sudden uh all the inputs you know are expensive and all of a sudden the electricity's not that cheap anymore. That's something that, you know, deserves some thought as we move forward, you know, in in the transition. Um but if you're in Southeast Asia and your population is just kind of starting to hit that wealth S curve of, you know, per capita GDP reaching the point where people want you know, more electricity. They, there's there's places in Southeast Asia where 10, 15, 20% of people have air conditioning. Promise you 100% want it and more and more will get it as they get wealthier. And that requires a lot of electricity and, and plenty of those plants. There's, there's almost have to be coal because it, it's just kind of how the math works. So coal's, coal's not going away. The amount of coal being used today is as high as it's ever been and what well, the funny thing is is whenever i started the research on coal i just assumed the usage had gone down globally so i was actually kind of taken back by the fact that it hasn't moved yet um hmm. so it's, it's definitely interesting as we move forward can can we actually get away from coal we have in the west but globally we haven't
0: yeah uh it's it's slightly depressing to hear you say that but um i, I mean i guess that's sort of reality it's, it struck me as you're talking i mean coal is, until we have a battery that is as cheap and as plentiful and as reliable as a pile of coal, uh, probably it's going to be hard to get rid of coal, as you said, from a backup standpoint. And like you said, some of these other countries, um, well, I don't know, you, you were skeptical about China moving away from coal. It seems to me that China is going to have a little bit more of an impetus to move away from coal than some of those other Southeast Southeastern Asian states for the simple reason that once the Chinese government decides that it wants to do something, it will generally do something and it wants to get away from coal. Um, but it, it's hard to argue, I think, with your general macro picture. I mean, even if um, the European Union and the US and some of these more renewable focused countries are able to push forward with their plans, um, unless you can get a bunch of other countries on the same page, um, coal usage is probably still going to go up. It's just going to go up in different places around the world, and it's still going to be something that is plentiful and cheap for folks to mine.
1: Yeah, and, and it when it comes to china the the, one of the reasons i think they might just kind of stick around in coal a little more and longer than than folks expect is just just the the security of supply they they can they can get almost all the coal they need like you know in in country which is obviously nice a nice thing to have you don't have to ship it uh in any sort of conflict scenario You, you can actually keep the lights on which which I think is a big deal. And, you know, that could be just a thing where they mothball plants and just kind of keep it on standby for an emergency and, and do, you know, heavily move away. And I think we all hope they, you know, move away because that's one of the biggest sticking points, you know, there is globally. The U.S. has had significant reductions in emissions, and it's almost 100% just tied to moving from coal to natural gas. That That's really, that's kind of the, the keystone of, of our reduction in emissions in the U.S. and, and, and Europe as well.
0: Yeah. Um, Let's move from there to um, a piece that I read of yours that was in some ways the most interesting for me because it most dovetailed with my expertise in geopolitics, and is something that I've been looking at from a different angle as well, Um, and that is copper in particular. Um, You alluded with it a little bit because copper is one of these commodities that if you are going to scale renewables, you're going to need a lot of copper and a lot more copper than is being produced at scale. Um, Copper prices have roughly doubled in the last year. Um, but uh, and they're up about 20% year-to-date, but they have declined roughly 9 to 10% here, uh, what, in the last quarter or so? Um, so we're recording here on August 6th. This'll, this won't come out for a couple weeks, um, but just from where we sit right now, where do you see copper prices going for the rest of the year? And then maybe give us some of your, your macro thoughts or macro outlook on where copper is going from here.
1: So I'm, I'm, I'm definitely bullish on a, on a secular basis in a big way. Uh, when it comes to the rest of the year, I can honestly kind of see it going either way. Um, and a lot of that kind of circles back to Latin American politics. So uh, folks need to definitely check out your, your research product on that, because it's going to be helpful kind of keeping an eye on what's going on in, in uh, Chile and Peru as we move forward politically, because even, you know, as we, as we record this, we don't know what's about to happen with a pos- possible strike at the world's biggest copper mine. So there's a the perfect example of, of why you have to keep an eye on on the politics there and for anyone that doesn't know like about half of the world's exports for copper kind of come out of the region there so it that's that's a big deal um and this is one of the things i i found really interesting that i haven't seen too many people kind of talk about that i wanted to ask you about specifically Um, when it comes to chile if you think about this global energy transition and the fact that we're going to need a bunch more copper and half of it basically comes from from those two countries in latin america obviously they're talking right now about like you know raising taxes or fees and finding finding new ways to generate income uh from the copper miners and obviously the way you kind of have to approach that is trying to get as much money as you can without you know killing the golden goose and that's that's a fine line to to have there but if if we get into a situation where production kind of say say goes up 50 percent in those countries in the next five ten years the amount of money that those two governments can make is, is significant especially if they extract kind of the perfect amount of rent from this without without ruining production i i just see the possibility to have significant money into the government coffers in, in chile and peru and I, I wanted your thoughts about about what what the implications of that could be like what could you see you know some sort of really productive renaissance there that could be a big deal for those countries yeah so there's a lot to pull apart there let's let's
0: attack the question um so you sort of alluded to it i think it's 45 to 50 percent of copper exports in the world come from chile and peru um they're also the two top producers Um, in the entire world. China's the number three producer, but it doesn't export. China's actually a huge importer, even though it's the third largest producer of copper, which is sometimes confusing for folks. And about 60% of Chile's copper exports go straight to China. It's something like, uh, I forget what the, it's like seven out of, seven million tons out of 12 million, something like that. We can uh, post some data uh, with the podcast. Um, But then you round out the rest of the major exporters. It's um, Australia, Canada, Mexico. Which, when I was prepping for this podcast, I hadn't quite realized how stark that was. But those are all countries that are either in the US alliance network or are even solidly in the Western Hemisphere. The only one that isn't there is Australia, and Australia and China have terrible relations right now. You have to go down, you know, pretty far down the list till you get to Mongolia, Kazakhstan, the Democratic Republic of Congo as major copper um, exporters that China can kind of rely on there. Um, and it's not just China. It's also Japan, South Korea, importing a lot of the stuff because that's where a lot of the tech is actually being assembled. Um, so there's a lot of interesting issues there. But let's put that aside for a second. Uh, in terms of you know politics in the region, as you said, it's it's Friday, August 6th. Um, the biggest uh, copper mine in the world is Escondida. It's in Chile. Um, the workers there said uh, they haven't been able to reach an agreement with BHP, um, this morning, it seemed like BHP had started to cave a little bit. They have until Monday to come to an agreement. The, the copper union there has, uh, or the workers union there, they're ready to strike if need be. It looks to me like maybe they're going to get through it. Maybe I'll look stupid a month from now when we post this, but it seems to me like we're trending in the right direction there, but who knows? Um, this is something you have to deal with when you're in Latin America in general. There's just a lot more tradition of uh, worker protests throughout the region. We're seeing this right now. Uh, with corn futures, where just as major Argentine ports are, are struggling because of drought there on the Paraná River, that's when the, the workers at the alternative ports decide to go on strike. That's just sort of a fact of, of life here. Um, but I'm to, to say it succinctly, I'm bullish on Chile and I'm bearish on Peru. Um, Chile, that's not to say Chile is going is to be stable by any means. I think it's going to be pretty volatile. But when you look at Chile, it's got a solid education system. It's got high GDP per capita. Um, it's really not threatened by anyone geographically because of where it is in the Andes. It is a smaller country, um, and it is simply easier uh, to deal with resource commodity wealth as a smaller country than as a larger country. doesn't mean it's always going to work. A um, really great example is oil in Norway and or oil in Libya, both small countries, both blessed with oil. Norway did a good job. Libya did a bad job. We could talk about all the reasons that that's the case. Um, Chile, I think, can think about using copper and lithium in the same way that Norway uses oil. That, that's on the table for them. It's not outside the realm of, of possibility if they have good policy making. And honestly, I think they will have good policy making. This period of adjustment that we're going through right now it was long overdue. The previous constitution was written by a crazy right-wing dictator. I wouldn't want to live under that constitution either. Nothing that's happening in Chile in politics um, makes me confused. Like it, it all makes sense. You can see the moderates coming out. People are voting for political independence. I'm, I'm chill with Chile, um, if you'll forgive the terrible pun. Uh, Peru, I I was already scared and I'm getting more scared every day based on what Castillo is doing. Um, he made a lot of noise on the campaign trail and then suddenly found himself as a front runner. And I took some solace in the fact that as a front runner, he seemed to want to dial things back. He had, he had been talking about straight up nationalization of, of mining companies and Peruvian mining assets. He taught, he walked a lot of that back. You had, uh, senior ad- advisors of him, you know, giving interviews in English to Bloomberg saying, no, we're fine. We're moderate. Like we're not going to do this sort of stuff. Um, and his first salvo as president here in the, in the last week, um, th- there have been some indications of moderation. He's going to have a finance minister who's relatively moderate. It doesn't look like he's going to fool around with the central bank. But some of the other stuff he's doing and saying um, scares me and sounds like he's going to try to push forward. The silver lining there, though, um, and, and this isn't necessarily a silver lining for Peru in general, but the silver lining about Castillo as a threat is that Peruvian politics is completely screwed up. So he doesn't have a majority in Congress. He's not going to be able to push any of this stuff forward. I think there's a better chance that Peru, that Castillo is not president in a year than there is that he's going to push forward any of his very ambitious proposals when it comes to mining. But that's bad. I think Peru is in for years of political gridlock. And to your point, if you don't start making policy decisions right now for this future influx of wealth, um, you're going to lose it. Or you're not going to be able to, to capitalize on it in a way that is actually good for your own country. Whereas Chile is a country that I think can do that. Um, so that's kind of a long winded way of, of why I, or a long winded way of saying that I'm bullish on Chile and bearish on Peru. Even in Chile, though, I would say you know if copper prices are going to double in the next five years. Um, yeah, they're gonna want to. They're gonna want to tax it. They're gonna want more money from the mining companies. Like that's not unreasonable. So there's gonna have to be some kind of modus vivendi there between them. And I think if you have a stable government that's been able to get through what I expect the Chilean government to get through, there's a prospect for negotiation there in a way that there probably isn't in Peru if it continues on its path.
1: Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense to me, and is the way I currently read it as well. Uh, so I, I I think Chile is a, is a country. That people you know especially macro people investors should take a, a hard look at in the next couple of years as a place to allocate capital
0: yeah and it's also i mean we can talk a little bit about the secular and structural forces undergirding the the copper market in general but we should also point out i mean chile is by far the largest producer and exporter but peru's number two we're talking about 15 percent of global exports so if you got a situation where peru really went off the deep end um, then you had protests that were disrupting supply chains or export operations in Peru. And it's not crazy. This just happened with Colombian coffee two months ago, and Colombia is in much better shape than Peru is. Um, you're talking about taking fifteen percent of 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 copper on the market off if Peru really goes
1: goes crazy, um, which yeah, that, I, that would be yeah. just that would be horrible for markets that if you just kind of look at supply and demand over the next decade, uh, you know, the projections, it's already you know a, a big deficit problem despite the fact that we have some big mines coming on, it's still going to be a deficit. So if all of a sudden you you pulled even, you know, cut in half uh, Peruvian production, it, it's just a major problem for the copper would be incredibly expensive. And along with it, so, you know, aluminum would kind of be become incredibly expensive as well. Yeah. What, one of the most uh, eye opening
0: points that you made for me in one of your reports was, um, was and we'll have we'll have links to your website, obviously, so listeners can go there and, and check it out. And we're going to give you a nice intro in the beginning. Um, but you know, w- when you just look at um, sort of basic, high level reports about copper, it, it seems like copper reserves are growing. That there's going to be maybe supply to meet demand. But you made the point that we're actually dealing here with with fewer reserves of lesser quality. That some of what's happening is that because the price of copper is increasing, um, copper that before it wasn't profitable to mine it actually is profitable to mine at certain prices, which, okay, that's in the reserves technically, but if we're moving towards a place where um, it's fewer reserves of lesser quality, you know, maybe those top-down figures aren't as great. So who knows? Maybe somebody will make a huge copper discovery and these things will sort themselves out. That's completely possible. Um, but it seems like if we're on the current track, you there was one stat you had in your report. You said, we need eight more Escondida mines, this one that we're talking about where the strike might happen, just to meet demand probably out to 2030 and that's probably being
1: relatively conservative right absolutely and and because i'm a little you know less excited about the energy transition at least the speed with which i think it happens one of the reasons i like investing in in copper is if i'm wrong about all that you know gas and oil aren't going to do what i expect them to do but that means copper will explode and Mm. so i I view copper as a bit of a hedge on my fossil fuel portfolio for that reason Mm mm-hmm
0: um, any other thoughts that listeners should have in general with with thinking about copper and where we're going with that particular resource
1: i the, the biggest thing is is just understanding if this energy transition goes the way people expect it it, it, it will be an explosive bull market and if it's it's if, honestly if it's half of what we expect it will be uh, but yeah you, you kind of hit the nail on the head with the the way the producers have kind of high graded gone after the ore that has the most <laughs> or you know the most in it so i think it's something just in, in in the mining in general that people lose sight of is a, the the economics of in, in in the geology of where you're mining so a lot of times producers will go get the easy stuff the cheap stuff out of the ground and they're kind of left with the more difficult and expensive to get to later and that that's just the kind of stuff that just does, doesn't make it into your basic supply and demand models but it matters in the end
0: yeah what about um what about lithium? Is lithium a, another commodity that you're fairly bullish on? Um, it's obviously critical for lithium-ion batteries and with electric vehicles. Um, so critical, in fact, that there's a lot of scientific research being done about how to not depend on lithium-ion batteries and trying to find other sources, which makes me think maybe it's a passing fad because they're going to find something maybe that's cheaper or easier to mine at some point. Um, but where are you on lithium? Which Chile, again, another, another major exporter, Argentina, all those countries, um, Bolivia as
1: well. Um, is, is that a commodity that you're also bullish on or are you a little more skeptical? I was, I'm i bullish, but but definitely a little more skeptical and, and essentially for the reasons you outlined. So, I mean, lithium is pretty abundant. Like it, it's not like there's not much lithium out there. It's not always easy to to mine and process and everything, but there's a lot of it out there. So from a pure supply standpoint, I don't think it'll be as big an issue as a lot of people project. But at the same time, it it doesn't seem like it's going to be the most effective and dependable source for batteries i don't know 20 30 years from now i think i think we'll i think we'll probably pass it up one way or another and i'm not smart enough on batteries to know what will win the race there but i i just have to assume we will depend on it less in the future but you know if that's 20 30 40 years from now and i'm you know we get the timing wrong then none of that will matter and it'll still you know have a great bull bull run I, i just i'm personally just not as up to speed and I don't feel like I have a grasp of all those moving, uh, all those you know different variables well enough to have a a really firm view. Yeah, it's it's hard to maintain
0: a grasp too because the moment you feel like you know what's going on, I mean that's how fast the science is moving. If I could go back in time, um, and go back to college, I, I would I would change from Middle Eastern studies to to trying to get into mechanical engineering or something like that because you sort of need a crash course in that anyway going forward as a macro thinker because that's where the real change is happening and sometimes it feels like it's happening on an even weekly basis with the things that are coming out
1: yeah and when it comes to innovation so i have experience working at a a sort of a national lab it's a military lab but a national lab uh, for rocket research and so what i one of my biggest takeaways from my time there is we'd have a company give us a pitch on something they could do and i'm not i'm not a rocket scientist so i read this pitch and i'm just like man this sounds incredible like this is this is awesome look at these drawings like you know the whole thing is like captivating and then one of the, you know, old, old senior rocket scientists who look at it and just tell you why it's all just, just mumbo jumbo and technically just garbage, is no no prayer. And that's like, it's like a really humbling thing for me. It's like, okay, well, I, I know nothing. So you just naturally realize like, okay, so if I go read some company's pitch about, you know, their new grid scale battery or their new EV battery, it's going to sound awesome to me. But when it comes to the technical realities of it, I, have, I don't have the training to know if it's good or not. So I kind of wait and see, let the market tell me if it's real or not. And obviously, that can mean you're too late to, to cap- capture a trend properly. But I, I try to instill that, that humility that I learned in, in, the, in the Rocket community to hmm. everything when it comes to technical innovation. Yeah, no, I hear you. Um, let's, let's zoom out a little bit. Let's
0: get macro about your macro thoughts, if you will. Um, it seems, it seems to me, you know, having followed you for a while and talked to you for a while, um, that at the end of the day, you're really into physical assets. So whether it's real estate, whether it's physical commodities, um, that that's really where the bulk of your focus is. And it seems to be that that's where you think most of the opportunity is. Um, and that also goes against the grain right now, because I think a lot of, you know, most of our listeners are geopolitics nerds. They're not finance nerds. So they're probably in passive index funds they're in fang and you know they're putting away and they probably feel good and that's great like if, you, if you've done that you've yes. done really really well over the course of the past couple of years um but it sounds like you're you're really preparing for a different kind of world going forward is, is that a fair um way of saying it or am i reading too much into it and you're just more interested in the physical stuff and you think there, there are other opportunities and equities besides
1: no it's definitely fair i my entire framework is based on on it's similar to, to the way Marco kind of sees the world. Speaking of of cousin Marco, uh, you know, we, we're kind of at the tail end of. So I was talking about all the weather cycles. I, I'm I'm a big cycle person in general because it's just an easy it's an easy framework to kind of base base a lot of things on, and and it's just true. It's just way humanity works. We tend to do a lot of things in cycles. So there are political cycles and and financial cycles and business cycles, inflation cycle, all of those things. So I, the way I see it, we're at the tail end of a lot of those cycles whether it be political you know the way we divvy up capital and and labor the the wealth uh the way taxes work uh how much we regulate how when it comes to um antitrust like all, all these different things like, are kind of cyclical and because we tend to go too far in one direction we kind of have to reverse course and i think we're you know it's in, in the early innings of that super tanker starting to turn around and what that equals to me is a lot more, a lot more fiscal support. And obviously there's going to be sort of, you know, down spots in these cycles. Uh, I, I think a lot of people think we're already there with MMT and things like this. And that's not necessarily the case. There are still plenty of centrists in Congress that care about the budget deficit on both sides of the aisle. But I think structurally we're moving in that direction. And us millennials tend to tend to lean left and us millennials are going to be a much bigger part of the the voting pie moving forward that so that's part of it too uh so almost everything i see kind of t- tends to show me more inflation the more money you give to to you know regular folks the more they spend and that actually creates inflation instead of giving a billionaire or uh you know a centimillionaire more money they don't really spend it so all that tends to lead to everything I see is more inflation. If we have more inflation, that upsets the apple cart of all the asset allocation that we know for the last 40 years, that bonds are a shock absorber, uh, when stocks go down, things like that. Um, these high-flying you know, tech companies that really do well when interest rates are pinned at zero. All of a sudden, if interest rates aren't pinned at zero, comparatively can struggle versus something like, you know, an oil company that's getting stuff out of the ground. So that's that's why I have a focus on, on real assets. But I will say at the same time, you know, for me to like pick apart the oil market versus Facebook's earnings or something, like I just find it a lot easier because it's, I mean, it's real, it's tangible. There are basic supply and demand numbers that just make sense and almost have to follow some rules versus, you know, trying to figure out some cutting edge you know, gene therapy or something like—I that. just don't have a prayer of doing that.
0: Yeah, uh, I think you were a little too kind to the congressmen who say that they care about the deficit. I'm sure they say they care about the deficit. That's but, fair. But dead is it like what twenty? I can't even keep track of how many trillion it's going to be. And you know, the whining over a hundred billion here or a hundred billion there um, is being somehow now fiscally irresponsible. But we need another fifty billion for some new rocket or or tank or better version of a tank that we're never going to actually use it 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 drives me i'm i'm particularly ornery this morning because you've probably seen this with the the last minute amendments into the infrastructure deal which has already been you know sliced to a quarter of what it was supposed to be um and and now they're throwing in random amendments about crypto regulation and proof right. of work versus proof of stake. And it's like, hey, you boomers don't know anything about cryptocurrency. I've talked to some of you guys about it. You have no idea. And even the Biden administration's weighing in about supporting an amendment with, with the infrastructure bill. And it's like, it's an infrastructure bill. Why are we talking about regulation of crypto, which is which is really important and we need Could to have spend a lot of pay for Sorry, but I, I went off the deep end there a little bit. But um, my point there though was, uh, it seems like t- it seems to me like we're going to have a lot of fiscal stimulus and easy monetary policy for a long time. I don't see a I don't see a, anyone on either side of the aisle who's going to have the stomach to raise interest rates anytime soon. Or are
1: you feeling a little bit differently about that? So when it comes to interest rates, I think they will say in the next 10, 20 years they'll go a lot higher. But and I know a lot of people say oh that can't happen it'll break everything. But I, Interest rates can go higher, no problem, as long as inflation's higher than the interest rates. If real interest rates stay deeply negative, you, you can lift nominal interest rates. Say, you know, if if housing prices keep going going higher, and all of a sudden, you say know, say inflation's six seven percent, and you're getting a ten percent raise a year instead of a two percent raise a year, well, all of a sudden your student loan's pretty easy to pay off. Things like that, your house is easy to pay off. Uh, so, like household balance sheets start looking pretty good despite that inflation and things like that make it a l- just a lot more easy f- to for people to handle interest rates going higher mm-hmm. so i think a lot of people kind of freeze one aspect of this and as if no one's going to get a raise and then inflation is going to go higher like well yeah then you can't raise interest rates nominally but you know if, if you're getting a big raise you can and i i think organically and through policy it, i think you'll see things like wage gains keep up or outpace even inflation. Mm -hmm. Um, I was also interested to read um,
0: a recent piece you did about inequality, uh, wealth inequality in the United States. Um, And it was interesting to me. I think you wrote it back in January. And it was interesting to me because you made an argument that I've been making for a long time now and which I haven't seen out there a whole heck of a lot, which is namely that the last time we got to a similar situation like this, just in terms of wealth inequality and where everything is going, um, it was roughly the 1890s. And what happened after that was this huge transformation in the way that the United States did everything. I mean, this is the progressive revolution in Teddy Roosevelt, and that really extends out through FDR because it's one kind of major period. And you alluded to that when you were mentioning demographics and the voter patterns of millennials, but I just wanted to give you a a chance to riff on that a little bit if you want.
1: Yeah, and I, I think it, it investors, geopolitical, you know, people interested just in politics, any of this, I, I, I highly recommend people go back and kind of study the, well, both Roosevelt eras and, and just kind of what happened, especially the Teddy Roosevelt, in my opinion, just as sort of an analog for what we're going through today. Um, it, it's just, if you take, if you just to kind of take a look at where we are today and, kind of game out what this does to us financially it just makes sense to try to get that equality back it's not it's not just for politics but it's for finance and economics the economy does better when you know when 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 working folks have money to spend into the economy Hmm. so i I think a lot of people just make this purely political and so just some background for me i used to be very extremely libertarian and um in some ways i still am I, i grew up in a very republican kind of reagan household So I grew up that way and then I became very libertarian. So I had, I always thought, you know, these people like the, the Roosevelt's were just awful. (laughs) Um, But then I remember reading about more and more about Teddy. Well, I mean, they both were kind of born, you know, as elites with silver spoons in their mouth, very wealthy. Um, So from their perspective, it was actually like a, if we don't fix this, then we, it fixes itself in a very ugly way that is bad for everybody, especially us. So I think people think Teddy was just like loved big government and like wanted to stick it to the rich guy, but in in, in the end, like he just didn't want to have a revolution was a was a big driving factor. So, I, so even even the the libertarian in me, I was able to look at that and I'm like, well, that I mean that makes sense. Like you, if you get to these extreme like points, like that's going to break one way or the other. You can manage it or you can just let it break. And obviously we don't we don't want to just let it break. So I think from a, a, a political risk standpoint you have to start uh fixing that and then obviously from a financial standpoint you just get less and less money making its way through the economy as as all the money kind of makes its way just to the top so it's just an imperative financially economically politically for stability and usually whenever something is that much of a an imperative it's going to happen
0: yeah um i mean both uh both Teddy and uh, both Teddy Roosevelt and FDR were considered by um, many of their peers uh, to be class traders. I mean that was that yeah. was really the way that they were thought of because of the changes that they were making. Um, but to your point, um, it, it wasn't like they were out for the little guy. They weren't the little guy. They were they were out for the, st- the stability of the system overall. I will say that it, it feels to me like we're a little further away from the inflection point than I necessarily thought we were. Um, Biden's victory um, rolled back the clock a little bit for me because Biden is not the standard bearer of the Democratic Party uh, if we're at the cusp of a major inflection point. It should have been a Bernie-type figure. And the fact that Biden won and won fairly easily um, tells me that there's probably a lot of room to go yet because, I mean, you know, Teddy only comes to power because McKinley gets assassinated. That's what transports him into office in the first place and gives him that power. So it's that kind of Black Swan event that gets him there. FDR, you know, rides in to save the country from the Great Depression, which again is, is after 10 years of a boom and after World War I and all of these contingencies and things like that. So if it is a roaring a recap of the Roaring 20s or the Gilded Age, it still fears, it feels to me like we're at the very beginning. It seems to me that the situation is going to have to get a lot worse. And that that's going to get reflected politically um, in a lot crazier characters that are in there right now. Because to your point, a lot of the level at which the discourse is happening, even in Congress right now, it's all it's all piecemeal. It's all very political. It's all centrist. It's all um, folks that are outside of the millennial demographic that is getting bigger um it seems to me we're going to see major political shifts before we get to that kind of inflection point so i I've, I've actually pushed out my expectation of when we're going to see um, some of the changes that you're talking about um do you feel differently or does that about line up with how you're seeing things as well
1: no that makes sense to me and i think you know when trump was elected it was sort of you know a signal for a lot of this stuff so i i i assumed the same thing like this this polarization uh, like there's no way like a centrist is getting elected anytime soon. So I, I figured you're going to get, uh, you know, Trump versus a, a real progressive, like a, a hardcore progressive. Mm-hmm. So I was surprised by the primary process uh, that, that the night was, you know, South Carolina and everything. I was like, okay, well, I might be wrong about this. Um, So I, I totally agree. Like push that off a little bit. And I think, it, I think it really comes down to demographics. There's, there's still enough. uh, There's still enough voters that have, that are left that know the, the system of the last 40 years. And, and it's, it's what they know. It's what they like. It's what they're comfortable with. And it's worked for them. Obviously like baby boomers have, have had a great time with the political system and, and the way we chop up the pie in the last 40 years. So they're not going to vote to, to kind of overturn that. Um, but every, every couple of years they become drastically less of, of the voting population. And as that happens, I think we just naturally move progressive granted, as people age, they kind of change their politics too. So some of the, you know, hardcore, you know, social, socialist fever of young people will probably wane as we move forward as well. But I I expect the Democrats to kind of gain more and more power personally. Um, And at some point control all of Washington and be able to actually push through like real progressive agenda that will be, in my opinion, you know, definitely very inflationary and, But not necessarily just in in a bad way that that everyone assumes inflation has to be. Yeah, I mean to play devil's advocate
0: though, I mean people do get conservative as they get older, but that also assumes that they've done well over time as they get older. And you know the millennials and the and those that come after them, you know they went through the two thousand eight financial crisis. They now have gone through a global pandemic that is still not over. Um, Wages, especially for lower middle income, have been stagnant for a long time. Um, There's less home ownership among. These folks. So, I mean, the system has not been as kind to them necessarily as it has been to their predecessors. So, um, whether there's just sort of a natural uh, calming process and conservative conservative process that come with comes with age, maybe. Um, but I, I could also make the flip side argument that you know some of these folks are going to get radicalized and get more upset um, as they go over time because they're going to have less time to make up the difference. It's not just going to be sort of waiting things out to to get to the same position that they even saw their parents in.
1: Yeah, definitely, and I think I think the the kind of the current focus of running the economy hot is 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 what kind of helps calm calm that stuff down. I, mm-hmm. you, whenever whenever the job market is doing well and people are, you know can get a job and they can get you know actual wage gains, that's the kind of stuff that keeps people off off the street at the end of the day. And if you look at you know the government balance sheet, it's awful and it keeps getting worse. But household balance is par- partially because they've basically taken it on the chin for households. Household balance sheets are doing really well i i think better than mm. the average person would realize uh, whether it's income net worth almost any metric you want to look at the the average household obviously plenty are still struggling horribly but the average you know median household uh to be specific is doing as well as they've done in you know really a generation and i think that will have political consequences yeah
0: all right chase anything else that we should have on the top of my, uh anything else we should have on the top of our minds before we let you go
1: uh, the only thing i can think of is, is is keeping an eye on on oil i think i think oil is going to keep keep marching higher it's, i'm I'm essentially bullish on every aspect of the energy markets whether it's oil natural gas uranium so coal uh yeah and just the biggest thing i want to leave everyone with is keep an eye out for a cold winter and more than colder than you would expect and that could have some impacts on electricity grids globally that could create significant issues so yeah just keep an eye on it when you say bullish on on energy markets in general does that include solar
0: and wind and renewables and it's just you think that we need a holistic view of the energy sector and that you're going to need to balance these other portions in order to capture the gains or is it specifically sort of you know the the hydrocarbon nuclear has been left for dead and shouldn't be and it's going to come back and maybe if you're over focused in solar and wind and stuff like that that's important but it's probably gone too far and you need to recalibrate what's a better way of summing up what your position is there yeah. So
1: from a financial perspective, I'm, I'm not particularly bullish on, on renewables. I mostly just because they're really overvalued. in, in my opinion, they've had a great run. Um, and I participated in that run for a couple of years and it just got a little too intense for me about six months ago and it's got out. But, and I mean, the hydrocarbon world has been just totally left for dead. I think people think we can make the entire energy transition, you know, in five years. And that's, that's, literally impossible mathematically and, and just from, from the way the earth is physically constructed but <laughs> i so that it's, it's just for me like hydrocarbons are just so cheap because everyone it, no one wants to give them money so at, if you take about half of the world's assets under management that are professionally managed money you're talking trillions of dollars more than half of that literally cannot fund investments in in hydrocarbons from from mandates um and and that's just happening more and more so there's not much capital that can really chase hydrocarbon investments and that's part of the reason that they are cheap also part of the reason they'll probably stay cheap um you know cheaper than they should be but you know for me I, i like to buy things that have a lot of upside left in them and i think i think that's that's hydrocarbons and not necessarily a lot of the players and um, and renewables. Although wh- whoever eventually gets it right on the battery side, it'll probably be a private company, but whoever gets that right, there's going to be a lot of money to, to be made and whoever gets the, the kind of grid scale battery, right? Yes. I, I think we all would, <laughs>
0: we would all love to, to know who's going to get the battery thing right and invest in them. But uh, yep. like you said, probably it'll be, somebody who we don't even know about yet and probably it won't even get to public markets because that's that's not the way things work unfortunately it
1: will you know years later when when you have to really pay up for it but yeah so oh well well
0: chase thank you so much we're gonna have to do this again we appreciate your time and we'll talk to you soon all right man All i appreciate it cheers thanks for listening to the latest episode of the perch pod If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, If you have feedback on this episode or in any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners. So please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at perch Spectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under perch perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice-a-week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.